Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, I'm Tom Butler. And I'm Brendan Duffy. You're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind, from Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with the occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, E.ON, or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something, or add some more detail, email us on podcast at jamesbondatz.co.uk. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast. The 5th of October 2022 marks 60 years since Dr. No first premiered. So to celebrate 60 years of Bond, we'll be talking about the greatest Bond movie moments over three very special episodes featuring more cameos than Casino Royale 1967. My name is Tom Butler and joining me for the first part of our Bond movie moments series, he's the Michael to my Barbara, is Mr. Brendan Duffy. Hello. And if Brendan is my Michael G. Wilson, then he's our Harry Saltzman. It's Mr. Tom Wheatley making his triumphant return to the podcast. Hello there. Hello. Welcome back. Yeah. Um, Nice to be back. (laughs) So across these episodes, you'll hear from our lovely listeners, other podcasts, friends of the show, guests old and new, who've all chosen their own favourite Bond movie moments. Um, And on this episode, we're focusing on the movies of Sean Connery and George Lazenby. So before we hear from our guests... What are your favourite moments from the Connery and Lazenby films that aren't mentioned by our guests? Sweetly, you first. Well, the the, the Connery ones are my favourite, so this was the, an easy one. Uh, my my top pick for uh, Connery moments, which is probably not one that a lot of people think of as one of the best moments, is the Goldfinger golf scene. Think just think that when it comes to Bond, there's certain there's there's loads of sequences that are great action. There's loads of sequences that are you know, funny. I think this one really hits the nail on the head with who Bond is, because it's so subtle, so slow and 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 simple, but it really shows you the relationship that Bond has with or should have with the enemies, where it's it's mind games, it's there's more to it than just simple action. And I think this whole sequence really sets the tone for some of the better later um, scenes across Bond, where they realise that it's not—it's not just an action uh, hero. It's there's a lot more to it than that. There's a lot of depth to it, and there's there's many other sequences in, in Goldfinger that I like this, but I think that's the one that really really sets the tone. Yeah, it's a meeting of minds, isn't it? Rather than a meeting of uh, brawn, which um, uh, I think really sets it apart. Um... And yeah, I know you're a big fan fan of this moment, but there's also there's like there's humour to it, isn't there? Yeah, there's a, it's it's almost like there's a constant undertone of danger, and you know that. But if anybody watched that scene without knowing the context of Bond, you just think it's two guys playing golf. But 
for, for the Bond fan, there's there's a lot more to it than that. And it throughout the course of it, you start to see that Bond is a bit of a trickster. He's playing he's he's playing the game throughout it, and and ultimately he's just basically cheating on a well, he's 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 tricking Goldfinger on on a, a golf shot. But really, that has repercussions throughout the whole film, which are actually a lot more important. And then you have the bit at the end where Oddjob crushes the golf ball, which is just pulling it right back to it's danger now. You're gonna. <laughs> You know, there's 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 gonna there's there's a repercussion to this that he might get seriously injured because of his actions, and a sprinkling of fan, fantasy, right? Because you got a little bit of fantasy, yeah. It pulls it pulls it back out of the, the the golf scene, yeah. Brendan, how about you? So I've gone for the fight at the gypsy camp in From Russia with Love. Oh, go on. I I feel like it's it's like a mini Bond adventure in that in that's that scene. You get everything you get in a in a Bond film, but in that short scene, you've got the friendship, uh, the the ally of Karen Bay, you know, and they work together to uh, defeat the villains, um, and then Bond gets the girls at the end, both girls in this sense. Um, but it's just it's just a it is a microcosm of what Connery's Bond is all about, I think, and underpinned by that terrific Double uh, O Seven Q from from John Barry as well. Which is probably my favourite of uh, of John Barry's work. It's mm. it's a close. There's so much good work, but I think that that really does help help the scene. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, chaos as well. That scene as well. <laughs> he's like a, a a source of. He's still calm, cool, and debonair in con, in absolute madness. So it's mm-hmm. it sort of really sets the tone yeah. for him. And let's not forget when we talked about this episode as well that this was all staged on a on a soundstage at Pinewood. Uh, mm. Due to the illness of um, of the actor playing uh, Kirin Bay, and that in itself is, is sort of something to be celebrated, right? Just the level of production design in that in that moment, mm-hmm. um, amazing work, incredible, incredible work. Um, so for me, from 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 the Connery era, I mean, it, I would say that the Connery films define Bond really for the rest mm. of the sixty years because it's always the you know he set the template it's the high that they've been chasing ever since and so for me I've, I've sort of tried to avoid um talking about some of the moments that came on later and really looked to see what happened in that very first film that set the templates at the bar and the two moments i've chosen from from dr no you've got the gun barrel which opens mm. the movie which has never been seen before in a movie um mm. And then would be repeated in every single movie since, which um, is unusual, right? There aren't any other film series that have a visual uh, motif, and such a uh, an obtuse one as well. It's quite an unusual motif that they have. The only other thing I could think of as a parallel would be the the lit fuse on Mission Impossible. Yeah, it's a smart move. It's almost like a a designer idea as opposed to a filmmaker idea where you're you're setting up the brand for the characters straight away i think they ha- i think there have been films in that have followed that have done something similar but it's almost a parody well not always a parody to bond but it you you know you look at it and you go oh they're copying bond so it's yeah it's a very clever stylistic thing to, to do especially from the start you can expect that coming in later but um yeah straight away it's a, a smart move it's like a, yeah, like a watermark, isn't it? Almost of mm. the films that like see you know, the quality that's the, exactly, exactly that runs all. And that's probably why it's it's not been you know it's been homaged, but films aren't doing it left, right, and centre. You don't see that. Well, it wouldn't you work know, if, if somebody else did it. You'd go, 
they're just copying Bond. That's exactly that's what they're doing. They can't, they which can't. makes it so special. It's yeah. so linked. Yeah, to to Bond, and also it sort of adds a, uh, a serialized story element to Bond, right? It makes it say this is part of a continuing series of films. You know, having that, it's almost like the um, the the Coronation music, Coronation Street music, and the um, and and the, the the rooftops, the cobbles, that sort of stuff. It says this mm. is a continuing drama. And this is the latest chapter in it. It's a really smart move, really. And that they struck upon it in the first movie is is, is quite clever, really. Well, in the, fact, the other, sorry, sorry, go on. The, the other thing of it is that if somebody was to do it now, when you see it at the start of the recent Bond films, it's not that impressive. I mean, apart from Die Another Day, which is absolutely fantastic uh, <laughs> boom barrel sequence. But back then, that, that it was actually quite technologically advanced doing that. So mm. it when people watched that they probably went wow how the hell how the hell did they they do this shot so you're setting up the the world and going we're putting a lot of effort into this it's going to it's going to look amazing so it's a really simple way of going this is this is high budget this is good yeah morris binder is the man that takes credit for that one so uh, yeah and I, what I was going to say is that it's the fact that they brought it back for from russia with love that was the smart move. Yeah, it was clever to create it, but then to bring it back for a from Russia with love then then make it makes it a cornerstone. Right. Let's move on to Mr. Lazenby then. He only made one movie, 1969's Honor Majesty's Secret Service, but by many, including me, it's considered one of the best. So what what do you take as the sort of iconic moments from Honor Majesty's Secret Service? Lazenby's quite hard because there are quite a lot of iconic things that he does, but I don't think they're particularly good. <laughs> I'd, like uh, his Hillary Bray roles and stuff like that, I think is is very memorable, but I don't see it as being iconic. Um, I think for Lazenby, he was fantastic at action, and in that film, the the, the directing and the and, and the, the sort of filming of the action sequences was absolutely fantastic. So for me, there's a couple of ski chase scenes in in, in My Majesty's Secret Service. I would say the first one is absolutely fantastic, and it just goes to show. He is an action star, Lazenby. Like there's, it's it's really darkly lit. It's quite sinister. There's lots going on, but the skiing in it is absolutely fantastic. Like the action, the action sequences and the way that they've recorded it, just it almost takes it up a notch from a lot of the previous films and says this guy is an action star. This is just fantastic. If you watch that scene in, in, in on its own, if you showed it to somebody who didn't know Bond, it's a beautiful, beautifully set scene, and it just there's no comedy in it. It's just dark really enthralling um action and it just looks fantastic and it's got the longest uh, mountain fall in history hasn't it where yes, the guy falls off the mountain yeah. and it just keeps on going and going and going yeah. um but yeah this is the first time you see skiing in in a bond movie so um again mm. they really sort of set the bar high with that one um brendan yeah a lot of action has been cho- chosen so i th- i've gone for bond in general, being undercover as Hilary Bray. Oh, right. Um, okay. I, <laughs> what I just because like. I, <laughs> you didn't like that. <laughs> I just, I just like, like, we need to remember Bond is a spy, right? And more, more recently we've, we've seen him do spy stuff less and less, but in this one going undercover as Hilary Bray and he, and he's having a good time doing it. Um, I just think it, it shows another side of Bond that I'd like to see more of actually undercover Bond. Because mm. it is, it is a bit ridiculous that we, you know, we know his favourite drink. Mm. You know, sometimes they even know his theme tune. If it depends, which if you're in the Moore era. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think, um, yeah, I think that's it's enjoyable. It's I, good to watch. I would have loved to see Daniel Craig do a Hillary Bray. 
he could do the accent for sure. Yeah. Um, uh, you've sparked a, a thought for me as well. Uh, t- in terms of Lazenby's spycraft, there's the great moment in the Humboldt's office where he has to in- infiltrate and get the um, get the use the photocopier doc- to get all the documents as well, which I love. Um, mm. It's a terrific yeah. moment again in that movie, sort of an understated moment where Bond is actually doing some actual espionage work, uh, and yeah. I love that. But f- for me, the definitive Honor Majesty's Secret Service moment is the ending. Um, it's what it's been, the film builds up to, um, which is the death of Tracy Bond just moments after he's married her. And it, the whole film is building up to the moment that they get married. And then to deliver that blow in the final moments is such a cruel twist of fate for Bond. But it's the fate that befalls all of his women Uh, right or pretty much most of them or a lot of them let's say a majority of them and having seen I mean I've always loved this movie from the first time I saw it and um, but having seen it on the big screen a few times now as well I find the moment it's what it's the only moment in all the films that leaves me feeling winded and emotional Um, and for that reason I have to call it one of the greatest Bond movie moments ever Um, it has an emotional impact that the series has never ever um, had before or since I don't think and we'll we'll talk about one in probably in our third episode where they sort of try to repeat that but yeah, for they me didn't, I think they didn't try it before I think that's the first time they tried to do that so that's why it's so um, interesting I mean there's there's probably scenes where you know you can say there's it's meant to be a bit sad but this is the really this is a tearjerker moment and there's there's more to it than that because it was the one and only time Lazenby is the last time you see Lazenby as well so there's a lot more to it um, I think sub- since then they have tried to replicate it, but it's never had the 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 the, the sort of power that 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 scene had because they never built up a character the same way they built up um, and Tracy. Yeah, I always find there's a there's a stillness afterwards in the aftermath. Mm. It's quite you know haunting, really. Mm. You see that the the one thing Bond has uh, he's finally you know given his heart to someone crushed. Well, that's great. I mean, obviously, this uh, the this era doesn't end with Lazenby. It does continue with Connery coming back for Diamonds Are Forever. Um, sadly, none of our guests have mentioned a Diamonds Are Forever moment. But any any honourable mentions? Yeah, I think the uh, the the fight in the lift. Yeah, I think with Peter Franks that's really good. stands yeah, out I did, for me. I did look at that yeah, one. yeah. Um, and it really and then it it, it sort of boosts his relationship with. Uh, uh, Tiffany, it's Tiffany Case, isn't it? It's, it's the only time in the film where Connery looks like he's into it. He's enjoying himself. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Not the moon buggy chase. Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Absolutely not. So, on this episode, uh, you will hear from, in reverse order, Sean Longmore, Ian Sandwell, The Best Bits Podcast, Mark Salisbury, Melanie Williams, Kim Sherwood. But first, let's hear from Luella Chapman. Welcome back to the James Bond A to Z podcast, Dr. Luella Chapman, author of Fashioning James Bond and the upcoming BFI film classics on From Russia With Love. How are you? Very well, thank you. How are you both? Yeah, very good. Very good. Obviously, we're celebrating 60 years of Bond, um, no better thing way to celebrate than to release a new book about Bond. No, no, exactly. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute, I guess. 
But first, and it's, it's, we appreciate this is a, a difficult sort of thing to get your head around, um, but we are asking you your greatest Bond movie moment of the last 60 years. So much to choose from. There is, you know, I could have gone with the very first scene where we're introduced to cinematic James Bond in Doctor No, uh, played by Sean Connery. I could have gone, given that I've written on fashion and costume, with Honey Rider emerging out of the sea in the most beautiful bikini, setting the standard for Bond girls throughout the last 60 years. I could have gone with Roger Moore's Bond, you know, parachuting with that wonderful Union Jack parachute uh, in The Spy Who Loved Me. Or I could have even gone for Daniel Craig's uh, introduction as Bond in the pre-title sequence of Casino Royale, uh, where he obtains his double-A status. And I think that's a wonderful scene. But because um, of my personal connection to this film, I've got to go with the moment that... um, Grant first outwits Bond on the Orient Express and then Bond gets the better of him um, in From Russia With Love. I just think that's such a fantastic moment in the Bond films um, and it really has such a longevity across the last 60 years, um, both in terms of performance of Connery and uh, Robert Shaw, but also just in terms of a wonderful balance of the psychological realism uh, that Bond can offer, as well as the fight sequences and the spectacle of that. So I'm going to go with the Orient Express fight scene. It's a great choice. It really is. I mean, it's it's a mm. it's a moment that we talk about a lot on the, on the podcast as being one of those uh, uh, indelible, um, unsurmountable pinnacles of bond i think um interesting that it's you know from only from the second film um and you think if it wasn't for the success of those early films would we still be talking about them now 60 years later um probably not um but i I think what i like about this the moment that you've chosen is um it's it's got that sort of um What's the word? It's like it's the it's the travel element, I think. So it's got that sort of exoticism. You know, there's something exotic about traveling. Um, we don't really have it so much nowadays, but in the 60s, um, I imagine it was probably quite uh, quite evocative. Um, and the idea of being on the Orient Express in Istanbul or whatever um, is just amazing. Obviously, they were just filming it in the back lot of Pinewood, but uh, <laughs> I think it adds it adds some uh, another element, doesn't it? It's not the 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 1251 to king's cross it's 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 something else it's something a bit special yeah i mean i think it really encapsulates um something that the bomb films can do if they choose to do it which is the psychological realist area of of the spy thriller um you know the build-up to that scene you know where you watch you know grant track bond you know, while Bond's wandering along the platform, you've then got Grant tracking him down through the Orient Express. This haunting menace, you know, this build-up. You know, there's the scene in the dining car, of course, where Grant drugs Tatiana. Uh, Bond clocks that. And, and the references to old man and, you know, and things. And obviously the Chianti and, and fish moment. But you've got this massive, you know, very slow and steady build-up to this moment you know, where Bond effectively meets his physical match. You mm. know, this isn't 
Jaws versus Roger Moore's Bond on a train. This is, you know, they're, they're very equally matched physically and psychologically as well. And you've got this really interesting dark mirror image of Bond, um, you know, and it's not played for laughs. You know, there are humorous moments in in their scene together. Um, but, I mean, I was re-watching it earlier and even when the smoke comes out of the Atachi briefcase that Bond's kind of manipulated Grant into opening, it's still not a foregone conclusion that Bond's actually going to win this fight. Um, and the reason I really chose this, and I'm assuming maybe other people have chosen their moments for a similar reason, is because it's quite personal in terms of my own viewing of the Bond films. Because when I first viewed this film, the first film I saw was Doctor No. The second film, a week later, I was about seven years of age. I watched From Russia With Love. And what my dad didn't tell me when I watched this film um, that there were other later Bond films and I didn't really, I hadn't read the novels so I didn't know that Bond was going to get out of this moment alive and for me, the suspense and the tension of watching the scene I really thought that Bond on his knees was not going to get out of it and so for me, I really experienced the suspense and the tension of that scene as presumably the filmmakers hoped for, you know, first-time Bond viewers at the time, even though I was watching it way later than the, the film was released. So, you know, it's a personal connection, I think, to that that moment as well is why I chose it. Yeah, so it's that's great. Um, it's something that even when I watch it now, the peril is still there for me. And uh, we've talked about this in previous episodes where it's one of those scenes you just can't take your eyes off of it. It's just, it, it's really, it ramps up and it's to the point where you're thinking, Bond can't get out of this. He's met, he has met his match, like you said. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, interesting I mean, as well. That, just, oh, sorry. No, sorry. I was just going to say interesting as well. Uh, I know we've talked about this before, but how Robert Shaw was someone that had been considered for Bond uh, at yeah. one stage as well. So the idea that he was going to go toe to toe with with Sean Connery, I think they knew each other as well, um, yeah. I think meant that 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 you're right it was a was a, a physical match and I, th- I think you remember was it that he did training with like turkish wrestlers while he was on <laughs> set to get himself in shape for it so robert shaw is, is a really imposing presence although i think in real life he was shorter than sean connery mm. um and so they had to do some uh bit of, bit of trickery but um another th- a thing i like about it as well is at the end of the fight um bond is on his is on his knees. He really mm. struggles to regain his composure, um, and that's something we don't really see again in Bond until you know Timothy Dalton mm. um, comes in, and you see Bond um, uh, on, on the back foot. Um, but yeah, I love Robert Shaw in this film. He's he he is fantastic. He is, and it's a great example. I think just thinking more broadly about the film, where you have two. I know they're technically henchmen, henchwomen, but you have two Bond villains that actually almost get equal billing, you know. They both get their moment with Bond, you know, the other being Razor Cleb, of course. Um, but both are very different, and, and the reactions that Bond has to both is is fascinating in this film. Um, you know, and, and going back to what you were saying about Robert Shaw, I think it's in uh, Diane Calento's biography, isn't it, about how, you know, off of the set, you know... Um, Robert Shaw's very competitive and he and 
Sean Connery have this running race, don't they? And and things like that. And I think it's Sean Connery that wins, you know. Um, but yes, they did, uh, you know, know each other, you know, British 60s actors all, you know, working together. And it, it's really interesting to watch. And I don't, I'm not quite sure. I'm sure this is rather, content, you know, possibly controversial, contentious argument. But I'm not sure really since then we've had quite the same equals matching in in terms of bonds and adversaries you know um you know because i think they are so physically well matched but also psychologically well matched as well you know um and and a good example of this is during the fight after the the smokes come out of the taxi briefcase and they're wrestling around in in a very you know tiny compartment very cleverly blue lit um you know in this sense of claustrophobia you know they're both trying to use the gadgets they've been assigned by their organizations so you've got grant you know garroting or attempting to garrot bond and bond scrabbling around to get into that attachy briefcase side so you can get the dagger out of it and you've got this really interesting equal balance going on you just don't know who's going to win the fight you know unless you'd of course already read the novel um you know and, and also i think the other great thing about that scene because of the psychological kind of realism spy thriller that you're really getting is that you know you get the big reveal of the plot to bond that's not humorous or jokey like you do in goldfinger you know when he's looking through the little kind of periscope thing and and watching the model and goldfingers talking <laughs> to the gangsters and stuff you know and as great as that scene is too you know this is actually much more real you know where where it's like oh yes i i can give you some time to tell you exactly what you know specter's plot is and how the girl tatiana's not involved in it you know, and you've got this interesting, very 60s spy thriller moment, you know, oh, you know, will you take money? Okay, no. Will you take cigarettes? Okay, will you take money and cigarettes combined? And there's this really interesting, <laughs> you know, development in this argument, you know. So, yeah, I think it's just fantastic. Um, Luella, what would you say is the secret to the to the longevity of Bond? How, how has this series survived for, for 60 years? Oh, <laughs> now you put me on the spot. I mean, I suppose the the rather, you know, dour answer might be money, um, <laughs> investment um, in, in a franchise. Um, I think, you know, it is hugely popular. You know, we do have to recognise this, regardless of what critics think, regardless of what academic scholars think, regardless of what fans think, you know, people go along to watch a Bond film to enjoy it. They want to go and sit in the cinema and have a bit of, not necessarily escapism, but they want spectacle. They want the stunts. They want also now, I mean, speaking now, they want something that they're comfortable with watching. You know what you're going to get with a bomb film, don't you? You know, um, but I think with Bond films, the, the longevity is really because they know how to adapt to make films reflecting the time we live in, you know, um so you know we've said with russia um and also with connery's films of the 60s they're made in a time of a particular period you know the same with roger moore's films you know i mean you might argue that the costumes are particularly 70s that he wears but you know they're made at a particular time you know political social cultural you know and they they know how to move with those times they recognize that so you know with craig 
you know, more reflection of the kind of serious kind of born identity type things, you know, understanding you might need a narrative arc among films, whereas previously you could go on and you could send Bond on a mission, he comes back home. Oh, two years later, you can send Bond on a different mission, he comes back home, you know, he, he wins it. So you've got changes of that and they've recognised that and they've adapted to the times, which I think really, you know, is how that series has worked. Um I mean, the most interesting thing for me is if you look back to the 60s, they can make bomb films every two years and, and now they can make bomb films every five years and, you know, ignoring COVID and things like that. So, you know, film production has changed over those times. And, you know, I mean, I think what's fantastic about it is it's it's a family franchise, both in terms of who can go and watch it, but also who is in charge of it as well. And I think that's mm. particularly special and very unique um, but what I particularly love about the films overall is they're just such an exemplar of British labour talent. You know, these are British films, you know, um, and they've really developed and helped people's careers in terms of crew members in particular, as well as the cast, of course. But, you know, this there is this wonderful sense of bonds and its Britishness and its connection with Britain. And I think that's really good. Yeah, we see that as we go through the alphabet and all these amazing crew members and what they've gone on to do since is is remarkable. Um, it really is a, a credit to British filmmaking. So, Luella, for the 60th anniversary, we teased at the beginning, you've got a book coming out uh, on From Russia With Love. So I, I feel like this segment has been a whole shameless plug for, for your book. <laughs> but um, what can you tell us about your BFI film classics on From Russia With Love? Okay, I, I honestly didn't choose the moment just because I've got a book coming out. You know, <laughs> it's my favourite film. And, um, you know, as I said, the personal connection to watching it is why I chose that particular scene. But um, what I hope with with my book I was able to do, and I did research it during COVID, which was a challenge, but I hope I'm able to reveal to um, not just general readers, but also fans of the franchise who know so much, by the way. They know way more than I do about Bond films. But I hope I'm able to introduce some tidbits and snippets from the archives, you know, as part of my research for this book. So I was able to look at Fleming's original manuscript that's available in uh, the Lilly Library placed at Bloomington, uh, sorry, Bloomington in uh, Indiana University, you know, where you actually get to see the original ending that Fleming envisaged, where Bond does not ambiguously potentially die at the end, but he actually takes... Tatiana out for dinner you know um I got to see papers from um the uh John Cork papers based at uh, the University of South Southern California where you get to see the call sheets you know where Blofeld is actually named he's not a question mark but he is actually named in the in the call sheets things like that um, I was very really lucky because I got to speak to uh, Colin Sullivan, who's the nephew of Eileen Sullivan, who was um, the wardrobe mistress, who actually has a, a, a small walk-on part in From Russia With Love, as did many of the other cast and crew members' family, uh, certainly for the 60s Bond films. But, of course, this continues throughout Bond's history, you know, making a very sort of British but family fueled affair. Um, you know, so I have various different snippets of archive materials that I've been able to put into this book. And I hope so, you know, so I hope that it's of value to people who are like yourselves, really knowledgeable about the bomb films already, 
um, as well as people who are perhaps more general readers who just want to know a bit more about James Bond. I can't wait to read it. Yeah, well, um, (laughs) if if you want to review it, don't let me know. Well, thank you so much for, for, for joining us, Luella. Always always a pleasure to hear your thoughts and hopefully uh, you enjoy the 60th anniversary of Bond just as much as we do. I'm really looking forward to it and I can't wait to celebrate it with you all. Put your hands in your pockets. Keep them there. Red wine with fish. Well, that should have told me something. Get me now the right wines. The other one on your knees. How does it feel, old man? Kim, uh, we're asking all of our guests at the moment about their favourite Bond movie moment for the 60th anniversary, and I wondered if we could put you on the spot. One mo- one moment. Yeah, I mean, oh. it can be as big or as small oh. as you like. <laughs> That's really one moment. Hmm. Oh, I don't know if this counts as a moment. I would say all of the train journey in from Russia with love. That's quite a long moment. <laughs> I love the building tension of that sequence. I love the dinner scene. I love the red wine with fish. Uh, I love the fight. I love how him on his knees, he had some desperate years in that moment, but he doesn't give in. The lighting of the fight is just all so perfect. How he gets off the train and the code words and everything. I I, I love all of that. So I, yeah, I think I think that whole train sequence would be my favorite moment. That is, I mean, that is a, a great choice. And it's just packed with so, like you say, so many amazing moments within yeah. itself. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's one that we always refer back to as well because it's sort of hmm. one of those bond moments that is sort of a little bit different to how the film, how the series progresses into. It's not about scale, it's not yeah. about explosions, it's about it's real spycraft. Yes, um, absolutely. There's real intimacy to it, and yeah. obviously you've got um, um, Red Grant as well, who's just one yeah. of the most terrifying. So chilling, friends. so good. Yeah. And I think mm. you're completely right. That sequence is almost like a short story in and of itself. It, it does have that intimacy and it's about escalating tension and suspense. And, and it's, it's, it, it really mirrors the book in that way. It it's, takes that tension from the page, I think. And, and it's also so stylish and kind of calls on North by Northwest as well. You know, that sort of era of men in grey suits looking good on trains. Beautiful. What do you... Um... What do you think the secret to the longevity of 007 is? Oh, good question. I think it's that he's a flexible icon, which sounds strange. You think about an icon like a religious image, you know, flattened and and fixed. But there's the essential ingredients of Bond. So you've got to have a martini and a tuxedo and an Aston Martin and have a particular attitude. And that's Bond. And then we recognise, oh, that's Bond. But can also change. And so the character on screen has been able to adapt with time. And I think that capacity for change is baked into Fleming, going back to what I was saying earlier about how Bond changes from from novel to novel. The the Bond of the novels is very human and very vulnerable and does change and does become weathered by the job. And I think it's that capacity for change mixed with those essential ingredients that creates an adaptable icon that you can carry with you through the ages. Really one of our most evergreen heroes. You won't be needing this, old man. 
Welcome back to the James Bond A to Z podcast, Melanie Williams. Thanks for joining us. Um, Melanie, if you remember, is the Professor of Film and Television Studies at University of East Anglia. Welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me back. So the uh, question that we've been asking uh, our past guests, it's a difficult one. What is your greatest Bond movie moment of the last 60 years? You're right, it is a really difficult question and I've sort of oomed and aahed over different possibilities, but what I've decided to go for in the end is um, the death of Jill Masterson in Goldfinger, or rather the discovery of her body painted gold. Um, and I suppose that the reason I went for this, I think Goldfinger is, you know, such a kind of powerful, memorable Bond film. It's got so many wonderful elements in it. So it was very high on my sort of personal league table of kind of memorable Bond films. Um, but then I was I was thinking about that that particular moment and how kind of eerie and strange and, and haunting this idea of, of death by asphyxiation of the skin through being painted gold. I mean, in, to the extent that, you know, lots of people think that that can happen. So it seems to have, you know, this particular eerie, strange death seems to have had this odd kind of afterlife in, in, in popular culture. Um, and the way that it's kind of simultaneously beautiful and horrible and and, you know, you've been kind of gearing up to this from the, the the theme song, you know, the idea of being touched by Goldfinger and this being the, the, the mark of death. So you're, you're kind of primed for this moment. But at the same time, when it when it does happen, it's so kind of disquieting and, and strange and, as I say, really kind of memorable and eerie. And I think, you know, it's to do with the appearance of, of Shelley Eaton kind of prone on the bed and, and she's kind of become like a statue or an object. But also that, that kind of musical motif that accompanies it as well, that, that kind of four note little kind of musical sting that makes this a kind of really yeah um unsettling moment i mean there are lots of kind of sadistic and weird deaths in in bond films but there's something about this this moment i think that that really that really sticks with you as a viewer um and then the way that that, that image is kind of replicated through the credits of the film, the posters for the film, this idea of a, a kind of female form that's kind of silhouetted or, or, or painted or has something projected onto it in some way. So it's a it's a kind of big, powerful image. So that was the one I plumped for in the end, but there were many contenders for kind of a big Bond moment, but that one really kind of sticks with me, I think. Yeah, I think it's a terrific moment that you've chosen. And I think what, yeah. one of the things, I mean, you mentioned the score and, and John Barry's score does uh, amazing work to really unsettle you in that moment. Um, but what I think uh, is really effective about it is it all happens off screen, 
right? So it's not one of those deaths that you're um, that's gratuitously showcased, you know, like later on you've got Solo being crushed in the car and that happens very much <laughs> right in front of your eyes. But this one, there's something very disquieting because at this point we don't really know much about Goldfinger. We're introduced to him. We're told he's a bit of a badden. Um, and, you know, Bond seduces this woman in the way that he does. And she comes a cropper because, because of it, you know. Um, and it happens under his nose, doesn't it? I think Odd Job knocks him out and then um, mm-hmm. and then it all happens. Yeah, it, it's it's very... The way that the scene works is very kind of dreamlike. So he he kind of, you know, loses consciousness and then wakes up and finds this this scene um and and you know that that there's lots of kind of sadism in in bomb films but there's there's something about that combination of like this sort of aestheticism of choosing to kill somebody through that particular manner that's really kind of there's something really kind of upsetting about it i think um and you know, given that there's so much talked about Bond films kind of objectifying women, and you know, there's there's a lot of potential examples of that. This is literally turning a woman into an object and kind of killing her through 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 doing that. Um, yeah, it's it's quite a moment, I think. You know, I think it because it's still relatively early within the the Bond franchise, and and you get the sense that by the time you get to Goldfinger, everything is kind of coalescing. And this is an important moment of certain ideas around, you know, how Bond works being crystallised around, around how it depicts women and, and how it depicts violence and sadism and all the all this kind of rich stew of, like, psychologically dense stuff around gender and loads of stuff like that it's all in the mix there yeah it really is um and as often we're finding with these moments it's the moment people are choosing moments that end up being echoed later in in future films um most notably in in uh, quantum of solace where poor agent strawberry fields finds herself in a cinema predicament but with oil um yes yeah yeah um but I mean, it doesn't. I mean, like it, when I I saw Quantum of Solace, I, I sort of obviously recognised the the gesture back to that to that earlier moment. Um, but there's uh, there's something about the sort of the gold paint that's you know that compared to the 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 black oil. Um, I suppose they're both turning women into sort of silhouettes in a way which of course is what happens in the the bond credit sequences famously you know that they're kind of their individual features are kind of obliterated by being turned into kind of silhouettes instead so and that's that happens literally by the the way that those those women are killed in in those films i dare say some you know critic with a real kind of psychoanalytic bent would be able to do all kinds of interesting stuff with <laughs> how those deaths are presented but you know thinking about how I respond to them as 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 a film viewer I mean certainly that um 
first seeing Goldfinger on the TV along with all the other Bond films that there are kind of lots of weird strange compelling moments that that stand out in all those films but but this one seems you know uh particularly resonant I suppose I think as well with that scene it gives you you're able to start measuring up what Goldfinger is about and uh just what sort of what where his character lies I think yeah I mean he's not just a bad egg he's a kind of creepy Mm. (laughs) it's it's a it's a rare way of doing away with somebody you know there's a real sense of a, a kind of deeply vengeful personality to kind of choose that that method of of assassination you know as so often is the case with bond villains you know you never pick the simplest route to get rid of somebody you kind of <laughs> choose the most baroque possible uh punishment or or way of you know bumping them off and this this is a lovely example of that i mean but you know, but i think i was reading as well there's this kind of urban myth that shirley eaton was actually like it did die as a result of being painted with gold paint which you know i wasn't an urban myth that i'd come across myself but it, it seems to have been something in circulation i think because she didn't make an awful lot of films after goldfinger so there's this idea that she kind of disappears from public life why is that She's still trying to scrub the gold paint off her, or has something terrible happened to her as a result that's been that's been hushed up. I I didn't really didn't know about that, but it was interesting to see that kind of yeah urban myth circulating around the film. It, it suggests that it's it that it has this kind of I don't know fascination, you know, in in the public imagination. It's an indelible image, isn't it? I think she did later recreate it um, for a magazine shoot decades later. I think maybe around the 50th anniversary. But um, yeah, she's been a great ambassador for the series ever since, even though she had such a small role. But something I really like about this moment that you've chosen, because we've spoken to a few people already, and and it illustrates a different side of Bond that maybe we haven't discussed with our other guests. They've often chosen spectacular moments, moments of, um, you know, stunts or excitement or, um, yeah, spectacle, whereas the moment you've chosen is is a much more Fleming-esque uh, moment in that it highlights the real dread and peril un- the under- underneath every single Bond movie. These are life and death situations that Bond and, and the people around him find themselves in. So I think it's a I think it's a terrific moment to choose and I'm glad you glad it's one you picked. Yeah, well I had to go for something a bit creepy. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy sandwich. But you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What, what do you think is the, is the secret to the, to the longevity of the Bond films, Melanie? You've, um, uh, you've studied them yourself. Uh, the yeah. Bottom, yeah. Oh, gosh. Stuff. I mean, that's that's... 
it's so difficult to to say because obviously if it if it were easy to identify the the secret to a successful film franchise you know everybody would be would be replicating that um i think it kind of links back to to what i was saying before about the sort of psychological richness of of the material and and the kind of kind of depth and complexity and and strangeness of a lot of that material well, that's yeah. Thank you so much for your thoughts, uh, Melanie. It's it's been a great pleasure to speak to you again. Um, here's to sixty years of James Bond, keeping us all busy. Absolutely, yeah. Here's to that. Hello and welcome back to the James Bond A to Z podcast, uh, Mr. Mark Salisbury. Thank you for coming back. Um, You're very welcome. Nice to be here again. Um, as you know, we're celebrating the 60 years of James Bond. Um, what moment have you chosen as the greatest James Bond movie moment of the last 60 years and why? OK, so I would really like to do the whole of Goldfinger. Because <laughs> uh, it's my favourite Bond and it's for me, it's my perf- the perfect Bond. Um, but I won't do the whole of Goldfinger. I will just do the car chase um, with the DB5, um, which I have this corgi toy here. Because uh, I had it when I was a child, and still have it because I'm a big child. Um, I just love that. It was for me. It was just kind of. I always loved Connery. He was my first Bond. I mean, I think the first. I was trying to remember the first film, first Bond film I saw on its initial release or new release was the Spy Who Loved Me. But I remember going to see these double bills of Connery Bonds with my dad. So there were, yeah, it was generally back on my birthday, he would take me to see Goldfinger and You Only Live Twice, or Diamonds Are Forever and Thunderball. Um, and I was trying to work out if I saw these before I saw The Spy Who Loved Me, um, but I can't remember, it's, it's a long time ago. Uh, so Connery was, was the man for me, and just that car, I wanted that car, uh, it was so cool with the smoke and the ejector seat and the guns and you know the oil slick. Um, I wanted to be James Bond, and that was just really, really exciting. Um, and one of the great things when I was on the set of Boat Hunter Die in Matera was getting to sit in one of the original hero cars. That was pretty spectacular. And they said, "Do you want to sit in one?" Of course I do. <laughs> um, and so I sat in one of the, actually interviewed somebody, sat in the driver's seat. Um, and yeah, that was a, just a, a thrill. Oh God, God, the thrill was just amazing. And I remember that I, I literally turned up in Matera in the morning and I was, I'd got a very early flight. I arrived, they took me to set, I had lunch. And then so we're going to set now. And I was in a minivan and we were following the five, DB5s along the road. They had a police escort and then the DB5s were being driven and I was just in the van looking at these cars. Uh, <laughs> I think it was maybe two, maybe it was the hero ones. And uh, so we went to the set and they parked them up and all the, the photos you've seen of the three cars with the tear in the background. I was there that day and got to sit in one. Uh, Unfortunately, didn't have the ejector seat uh, or, or <laughs> uh, 
Um, so they have other cars there that did all that kind of cool stuff. Uh, but yeah, so it's it's gold. It's Goldfinger. It is Goldfinger. It is the DB5 chase. Uh, always wanted to be James Bond. Always wanted to drive that car. Can't afford one. Um, but I had to call the toy. So, and you know, and I think there's been spectacular car chases afterwards. I mean, the one in Spectre in Rome, mm. I think, is mm. amazing. Um, and the one in Goldfinger, maybe not be the greatest car chase in the history of the Bond movies. And I watched it again today, and it's a little bit slower than I remember, but it's still cool. And Connery was cool, and that car is cool. And so I would, if I had to choose a scene, it would probably be that one. Though, so, you know, Shirley eating on the bed, the laser beam between the legs. I mean, it's all it's iconic, all, isn't it? It is. It is. It's, it's, yes. I mean, like, as a young boy, seeing that on the big screen, uh, I've just blown away. So I would, I would have to go for that. Well, it's a, it's a great choice. You're among company here. I know Brendan and I are both. I'm sure of that movie I I think what's really important as well to sort of um about that specific scene um is is obviously Goldfinger is the movie in the series where things become spy-fi right things become a bit heightened um the gadgets start coming into play a bit more and that scene just really typifies what makes the gadgetry of James Bond so exciting it's when you know Q sets it all up he sets up the, the punchlines and then when the car comes into play, all the punchlines come in into play. Um, and that's just the beauty, I think, of that s- sequence. And also the important thing is it's a British car, um, yeah. which again just says so much about what makes Bond so exciting, particularly for Brits, but like just as a, as a series in itself. Um, so Now this one I'm particularly keen about. You see the gear lever here? Now if you take the top off, you'll find a little red button. Whatever you do, don't touch it. No, why not? Because you'll release this section of the roof and engage and fire the passenger ejector seat. Ejector seat? You're joking. I never joke about my work, 007. But it's such an iconic piece of design. I mean, it was, the one I sat in was from 64. And it looked cool in 64, and it looks cool in... 2022. I mean, it's just one of those, yeah, it's, it's a piece of design that will never go out of fashion and it's gorgeous and sexy and I think the sequence is extraordinary. So, but the whole film, you know, you, you mentioned the spy stuff, but, you know, the Fort Knox, odd job. Yeah. Pretty much every scene is iconic. Yeah, um, the round of golf. Yes. Yeah. yeah, Stokely Park. I'm right, it is Stokely Park. Yeah, I think you're right, yeah. yeah. Which is obviously at the beginning of Layer Cake is Stokely Park as well. Right. Yeah. And uh, Gert Freib and uh, the music, it all just comes together in that movie, doesn't it? It does, it does. And it's funny, I was watching it again today and I think that they must have shot some of it at Pinewood because when they're driving through the sort of warehouses... Uh, in the sequence, it does look a bit familiar. Yeah, it, 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 it is. It is. It's Pinewood, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. they've got Goldfinger Avenue now there, haven't they? They have. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great choice, Mark. And like I said, you're amongst uh, amongst friends here because we're we're big fans of, of that movie, that sequence as well. But um, what what do you think the secret is to the, the Bond's long, longevity? Why is it endured for sixty years? Oh gosh, um, I just think the films are hugely entertaining, and Bond as a character is. For, well, for me, I can only talk about for me. I don't know why other people think it's great. I think it's great because James Bond is just kind of cool. And when I was a kid, I wanted to be James Bond. Um, you know, he's he's a superhero as far as I'm concerned. Um, and you know, I think they've chosen well with the actors over the years. Um, yeah, for me, he's just cool. Good enough we'll reason as any. Cool. Yes. So that's why it's endured for me. Um, yeah. And the car is cool. <laughs> it's just cool. <laughs> well, thanks Sorry, for joining. It's not very deep. <laughs> no. Just, uh... I don't, let's not get too deep. Thank you so much for joining us, Mark. Really appreciate Sorry, it. Hello, Tom and Brendan. It's Will and Kevin here from the Best Bits podcast. Thank you for including us in this 60th anniversary episode. Kevin, what is your favorite Bond moment or scene? I mentioned this on our Best Bond scene episode that we did. Yeah. But for me, Bond is just overflowing with great moments. But I went for one that I remember seeing in Leicester Square on the big screen. And it was electric. And it was the opening to Skyfall. And it's interesting in that it is an inciting incident of an opening. It's not sort of a day in the life where you get to see Bond on a prior mission. It's throwing you right into the plot. You're getting to see M, Money Penny. It's something that you wouldn't find in any other type of action movie where you have a spy sort of doing this for Queen and Country, like where he's saying, yes, ma'am, in the middle of an action scene. And it's thrilling and rousing and it goes into one of the best Bond songs of all time. And for me, that moment was really one of the all-time great cinema experiences for me. And uh, I had to mention it again for this, the opening to Skyfall. I love it. It's great. And my favourite moment or scene from all the James Bond franchise is actually not a big iconic moment, but something actually a much more quieter. And it comes from You Only Live Twice. And it's the scene where Bond and uh, his sidekick are going down to the docks to look for a ship. But Bond gets cornered by some bad guys. And uh, he shoots some of them, but he ends up escaping up onto the roof. And we have one of the, one of my favorite shots from the entire Bond franchise. And it's a helicopter shot of Bond being pursued by bad guys. Uh, across the rooftops and we've got that iconic John Barry score uh, playing behind it and it is beautiful but I love it because it typifies the personality of Bond he is cool under pressure he is undaunted in his pursuit of taking down bad guys and um, it's it's also Connery it's also the cinematography it's the score it's the music it's encapsulate the classiness and the fun and excitement of Bond and I absolutely love that little moment. There's so many. There's so, so many. 
Yeah, and to reiterate that, what I love about the personality of Bond is in Skyfall as well, when he leaps from one carriage to the next and he fixes his cufflinks. And I just remember the audience erupting applause when he did that because no one else would do that. That's not any other action hero's thing. But Bond is so suave and sophisticated and yeah. God, I want to go back and watch all the films again though. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a fun project every couple of years. <laughs> well, there you go. Thanks, guys. And uh, best of luck with the rest of the episode. Cheers. Hello and welcome to the James Bond Aid Said Podcast, movies editor of the UK's biggest TV and movies website, Digital Spy, Mr. Ian Sandwell. Hello. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Very well. We are celebrating 60 years of James Bond. Um, I imagine you've seen a few in your professional line of work. Many, yeah. But it, it goes way before my professional stuff. So I believe we were both there at the No Time to Die junket, which was a high point of my career. That's the only time I've interviewed them so far. So that's ticked off on the list, you know. Um, so in terms of your your Bond moment, it, you've had a think. Was it Was it hard to come to that conclusion? Have you got one? It was, it was absolutely hard um, to come to that conclusion, especially because it spanned so long, like 60-odd years as we're coming up to yeah. numerous films. Um, and I had to make a decision whether I was going to go for my head, um, which is my, my analytical kind of review side, journalism side, or with my heart. And I figured that when it comes to films, it's all about your emotions, it's all about your connections. Um, so I ended up going with my heart. Uh, and with the first Bond film I saw, um, which was You Only Live Twice, which, as we know, there are some issues with that film nowadays to put it mildly um in terms of sexism that greets all the early bond films and also the very racist moment where sean connery pretends to be japanese and gets made up in japanese in a weird plastic surgery montage but my point is that the moment specifically i'm picking is the volcano lair finale um because when i saw it it would have been on i you know when they used to be on itv in the afternoon on a Saturday or a Sunday, um, my mum got me into watching it. Um, so I would have been like eight or nine, I reckon, at this time. And as an eight or nine year old, you're watching a secret lair inside a volcano with a piranha pit, with loads of ninjas coming down and attacking everyone. Like, I mean, it's it ticks every single box. And now when I look back on it, I know that objectively it's, you know, a bit naff. Uh, but there's still that heart and that I remember how it made me feel and clearly it's made me a Bond fan because two decades later I'm still watching them and still writing about them. You forget, you forgot to mention the monorail and the rocket ships yeah. as well. Of course. <laughs> That's the thing. There's just so much in that sequence. There's, you know, there's also uh, Bond getting rid of Hans and he drops into the Piranha Pit and he's like, Bon Appetit. Like it's got everything you want from a Bond film. Um, that just yeah as a kid even now i'll be honest even now if i watch that in a new bomb film i'd be i'd be all over it like because why wouldn't you be yeah it's a scene that's been homaged many many times as well isn't it so you, you're not alone in in loving that moment no yeah and it, obviously it came back most recently with um no time to die there's no doubt that Safin's lair was heavily uh, influenced by that and it was that was influenced by the novel of You Only Live Twice, even though the film itself went far, far away from that. Um, so, yeah, it clearly influenced everyone and it has got everything you think of when you think of a Bond film, you know, over the top layer, villain, uh, despicable henchman that gets off before the villain, obviously, some kind of weird quirk of a villain. Like, it's just got everything, one-liners, girls, like, 
it's yeah just everything and the, the color design as well i think is also quite memorable within mm. that scene you know you've got all the, the all the henchmen in there brightly colored um um whatever they are romper suits no yeah. boiler suits aren't they <laughs> yeah um juxtaposed with the gray clad ninjas um yeah. and i know brendan uh, did you go see it recently when it was back at the cinema yeah yeah i remember thinking how yeah it's an amazing um set design uh, by ken adam for the volcano lair but actually also within that they've choreographed some incredible action beats as well and uh, unlike i think at this point you know what was it the fifth or sixth james bond film it really raised the bar for what we expect in terms of the level of spectacle and action um and you're right i think it has been not just lampooned by um you know spoofs you know austin no, powers austin powers it? yeah is it's, it it's absolutely austin powers yeah yeah but then also bond has repeated the same formula um most notably i think with um spy love me for sure mm. um again directed by lewis gilbert but um and then again like you say, it just keeps echoing and echoing throughout the the eras of Bond. Yeah, I think it's a, it, it's a great choice. I feel I feel like as well. Like I'm sure some Bond fan listening will tell me off and say I'm wrong, but it feels like the first Bond film that actually went away from the novel. Like it was very much it took the inspiration of the novel and the, the angle of it, but just went completely rogue and did its own thing. Um, which is obviously what Bond has had to do in order to survive all this time. Like there was only so many Ian Fleming novels and they were very much of their time. Like you can't imagine Casino Royale did the best, did the best job of it of like the modern Bonds, but you just can't imagine them being adapted anymore. So it felt like it set the bar for so many things. And it was the first um, appearance of Blofeld as well. Like he'd been in two films, you hadn't seen him. And then all of a sudden it's like Donald Pleasance and you don't get more Bond than Donald Pleasance spinning around on a chair <laughs> with a cat. Like, cat. I mean, that is Bond. Like, so that's, there's so many things about it that objectively as a film, as I was saying, there are issues. But just in terms of pure Bondness, if that's a word, um, it's just the moment that I, that I think of when I think of Bond. Yeah, I think it's a great gateway Bond film as well for, for for younger audiences. I know it's one of the ones I sort of really latched onto as a kid. And I think maybe growing up, I sort of distanced, came away from it a little bit. And then, but when I saw it at the cinema for this 63 release, I just think it's a spectacular movie. It is from start to finish. Yeah, there's problems with it, um, but it gives you what you want from a Bond film, I think, um, which is yeah. humour, action, uh, spectacle i think it's very much feels of a place and then on top of that or, or the layer beneath is just the incredible craftsmanship at, at work um yeah. on it have you seen the photos of pinewood when they were had the had the volcano lair set no i haven't no I, check them out you, you have to check them out because you will it will blow your mind they basically took the roof off one side um, off the off the ceiling to create the volcano that they could all then repel into yeah. And when you see it, it looks like, you know, like when you see the picture of Chernobyl and it's exploded, it looks a bit like that. It looks absolutely um, mind blowing. But um, yeah, that was such, such was their commitment. And it, obviously it was coming after Thunderball, the, the highest grossing James Bond film of all time. Yeah. They really were ready to throw everything at it. Um, yeah, I, th I think as well, though, like the main visual I remember from that finale, as well as well as the production design is incredible. 
but I just always remember that the like Blofeld's whole thing of like swallowing up things, and you just see the really quite crappy uh, practical thing of like swallowing all the spaceships. Like that's what that's what I remember from it. That's the moment where I think of that thing, and I'm like, you've got all this craft, and then something that looks like really cheap, but that's part of the charm. Like it's it works on every level. Absolutely. Um, so. Uh, we've been asking people obviously celebrating 60 years of bond what what do you think is the secret to the, the sort of the longevity of the series i think you know if if you're going to ask me purely on a cynical level it's that mgm know it's their one big franchise so it's the one thing they can keep bringing back like i was looking at the stats and it's like of mgm's top 20 highest grossing movies bond are 11 of them um, wow. And they're the first six until G.I. Joe Retaliation of all films. Um, that's the seventh <laughs> highest grossing MGM film worldwide. So on a cynical level, it's because of that. They know they've got a winner because they keep coming back. And the Daniel Craig era has just lifted it to another level uh, with the Skyfall uh, first hitting the billion. But yeah, it, it's that's that side. But then also the heart of it is they're that classic kind of four quadrant film. Like, as you mentioned earlier, like they're the film that everyone can see. Um, and every single different audience member it doesn't matter when you get into it you can get into it anytime you want whereas there are certain other franchises say like a star wars or something that if you, it feels sometimes that if you don't get into that when you're a kid you probably won't have the same connection or same emotion to it but you could watch your first bond film when you're 30 or when you're 50 and like i feel you'd still get that buzz of because they've got the formula so well now um but they refresh it as well at the same time uh so it's that kind of angle to it i feel um you always feel you know what you're going to get but you also know you're going to get something a little bit different um each bond era specifically but sometimes in between films um like with no time to die i'm guessing none of us knew what was going to happen at the end of no time to die um and then just sat there at the press screen and i remember there was like four four of us left waiting through the credits because obviously marvel makes people wait through the credits and obviously the iconic james bond will return comes up um, and I can't remember who it was, but someone in the crowd was like, Willie, <laughs> it's like that kind of stuff at the end. Um, <laughs> but there's always something like that, like they're, they're a community experience and cinema is a community experience across levels, across family members, across friends. Like you can watch any film um, and enjoy it, I feel. Yeah, I think that's that's really well put. I, th- I think it's one of those where I, 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 someone like yourself, Ian, you work within reporting on movies but I find that sometimes there's only very few films that then that that people then want to know about um, yeah. on a personal level. You know, they'll they know you work with writing about movies or whatever, and but they it would be like I don't know what the what an example would be, but like oh, Mama, is there a new Mama Mia coming out or something like that? But with James Bond, everyone you know is like oh, what's going on with it? I'm going to go see it. When are you going to go see it? Um, it really sort of crosses over. Um, yeah, but also. So, I feel it's also, I, we found this No Time to Die, but it's a, it's a franchise that is respected enough, like that, you know, when you see the latest Marvel film come out, you go on Twitter, you're going to see a spoiler, like, within a day, probably. James Bond, after No Time to Die, like, I was panicking about when I could write about what happened, because you just weren't seeing it anywhere on Twitter, like, not even those kind of weird jokes that, like, out without context that you sort of know straight away with context anyway, what it is. But there's like this respect with Bond. There's like this old fashioned British institution. Like we're not going to spoil anything. We're going to make everything come out. Like even with Skyfall, what happens like M's death, like that didn't come out either. Um, it's just, there's this, this respect around Bond and it's so long established that 
there'll always be excitement. You might not like each Bond. Like, obviously, there are Bond fans who don't like Daniel Craig, as didn't like Daniel Craig, should we say now, as Bond. But they'll be there whenever the new Bond's announced because it's a new era. It's a new start. Um, so, yeah, there will just always be that longevity of it um, because people love to live the spy life as well. <laughs> that is true. That's yeah. true. Right. Well, thank you very much for your thoughts, Ian. That's that's great. Um, pleasure to have you here. If people want to find you online, how can they get hold of you? Uh, so on Twitter, I'm Ian underscore Sandwell. And then just on Digital Spies website, I've got an awful page, Ian Sandwell, of all my latest theories and whatnot about all the latest movies. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the James Bond AIDS Ed podcast, Mr. Sean Longmore. Hello. Now, Sean, it's a great pleasure to have you on the podcast here talking about the 60th anniversary of James Bond. So what moment have you chosen as the most iconic or your greatest moment from the last six years of James Bond? Yes, my greatest. Uh, I say I think greatest is a little different to most iconic. Yes. Uh, yes. I t- I've kind of I've kind of interpreted greatest as my favourite. So I've yeah, gone for the bit. Um, it's a bit that always gives me goosebumps, um, and that's the ending battle of Piz Gloria in Honor, Majesty's Secret Service, which I absolutely adore for a whole variety of reasons. Well, why don't you give us some of those reasons, Sean? Yes, well, I, I just it's that it's the moment you, it sort of starts when you get Diana Rigg and Telly Savalas playing off one of the, one another. Um, and you kind of get that lovely sort of poetic build-up, and everything's just sort of so wonderfully shot. Um, and then everything storms and descends into that big kind of battle chaos um, that was synonymous with Bond at the time. Um, and for me, it's just the whole sequence is perfect. I mean, I love On a Majesty's Secret Service anyway. Uh, it's my favourite movie, like favourite movie altogether, so I'm probably a little bit biased. Um, but the whole thing every time, it's so beautifully shot. It almost feels like it's sort of choreographed in a way um, and just so like wonderfully done well acted um it's all set to um the i think it's the last inclusion of the original version of the james bond theme i think it's the last time we hear it in the whole franchise so it kind of has for me it kind of has that sort of grand finale sort of wrapping up of 1960s james bond to it all within one sequence and then you get all the cool stuff like you get the gorgeous shots of the helicopters coming over the horizon um there's all the the flamethrower there's some great stunts there's even a the there's a cutaway shot of the cable car exploding and it looks kind of like some really bad sort of spliced together re-projection bits um but i don't think i'd have it any other way because it's so sort of like iconic of 60s filmmaking craft um and I just love it. And also you get, as well, you kind of get both Bond and Tracy, Mrs. Bond, sort of uh, presented as equals through the whole sequence. So she's taking down one of the goons and having a full-on kind of fist fight, which is the thing you kind of associate with Bond to have up until that point. Um, so it's kind of... Then the film is truly sort of presenting to you that she's truly worthy of being Mrs. James Bond. And... Um, you, you see her on an equal footing and I, I love that I, lo- I, I love I, I could literally spat on about it for ages there's all sorts the disappearing helicopter which again it's a sort of it shows Peter Hunt sort of splicing footage together 
um, in a way you wouldn't normally do for continuity, but because of his unique sort of filmmaking style that he brings to the movie as a whole, it, it kind of works, and there's lots of filmmaking techniques like that that really work. Um, there's the guy jumping out the helicopter getting lost in the snow. Um, there's just lots of little things in there as well as the main stuff, um, with Lazenby sort of commanding his way through this wonderful action sequence when he's um, he's going across the curling rink. Um, what a moment! Kind of, yeah, and he, he kind of just feels really cool, doesn't he? Um, and it's by that point, I, you kind of warm to Lazenby throughout the film, and that point in my head it kind of clicks that you're kind of going okay yeah this guy's bombed and it's a shame and um, I didn't carry on a bit more but yeah that whole sequence I just absolutely adore it yeah I mean it's got a, a grand scale to it that um, uh, cannot be denied and it's interesting as well that this is the first time in the Bond series that we get the snow the mountain snow se- mm-hmm. sequences on a Majesty Secret Service really you know plants its flag in the sand as being the the definitive um, mountain sequence for Bond, um, and this sequence, um, yeah, in particular, is is fantastic. I mean, you've mentioned so many different aspects there that we could we could pick apart. Um, the the first part you mentioned about the the, the interplay between um, uh, Telesavallis and Diana Rigg. Yes, it's just yes. so beautifully done, and it's we get a Blofeld that is um, he's potent, he's virile. Um, he's my favourite version of Blofeld, I think. Mm-hmm, same, same. Um, he's got, um, he's so he's so smooth and charming, um, yet he kind of oozes, he kind of oozes that sort of evil vibe as well. Um, I, I mean, I, I think all all of all of them are great, and I love the campness of Charles Gray. Um, but there's something about Telesavallis that you, he commands a room, and. I think Dinah Rigg has that same quality as an actress. So when you put them together, that whole, it's really, it's kind of a really understated little bit of a sequence. Um, but you really get the sense that you're watching two great actors sort of both playing to fight for the power um, on in each shot and, and the scene. You've got that exchange of poetry as well, which mm-hmm. I always think is a beautiful moment that sort of, um, sets this film apart from possibly other Bond films in its yes. in its dialogue. Um, yes, O oh, Master of the World, My Dawn. Um, it's, it's an adapted piece of poetry. I don't think that is... I'm sure I've read somewhere that that's not the orig- very original piece of poetry, which is, I think is a wonderful Bond thing, is that the Peter Hunt or whoever, when they were choosing a piece for that they could sort of recite, maybe, maybe it came down to the actors, sort of adapted it and thought, well, we can play a little bit more with that and it kind of it's that lovely way of Bond taking something and adapting it into being something greater that I think is something the franchise as a whole um, but yeah it's, it's beautiful and it's all set to that lovely orange sky um, when they go upstairs it's beautiful absolutely beautiful yeah I always think um, uh, of well, with the orange sky and also the matching with the orange jumpsuits, it's sort of a beautifully mm-hmm. colourful movie, isn't it? Like mm-hmm. it's sort, of, sort of mentioned that it was sort of the end of the 60s, the culmination of the 60s. And I think this movie uh, really encapsulates that. Um, and incredible to think it's Peter Hunt's directorial debut. Um, uh, which, yeah. yeah. You, 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 you can really tell he's, much like John Glenn did when he started, he's learnt a lot from editing Bond. Um, and he's coming into Bond as a very sort of technical director. Um and it, it's it's something that's quite extraordinary, I think, um, 
as a sort of case study in filmmaking, because typically when you look at a director, it's often said you either get an actor director or you get a technical director. And an actor director is someone who very much focuses on actors and directing actors and um, casting really good people and believes the actors are going to carry what you see on screen. Um, or you get a technical director, which is someone that focuses on special effects and focuses on, say, um, a lot like Pete Hunt does with all the editing and sort of the film, visual sort of filmmaking techniques behind the camera. Um, but what's really unique, I find, is that Pete Hunt somehow has managed to do both with Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah. And he's got a wonderful cast that he wonderfully directs. And it's such a, a very technically complicated film that he really pulls off. Um, and what you're saying, what you said about the color also plays off what you also said about it being um, Bond's first the planting the flag for snow sequences because you've got all this wonderful color set against white which is something the Bond franchise hadn't done before and it really does like you say help highlight it as something different and talking about like I know we said the greatest slash most iconic but uh, this this is a film this is a sequence that has you know has echoes through through Hollywood afterwards as well I mean I'm thinking specifically of Inception mm-hmm. um which Christopher Nolan acknowledged were that that sequence in the mountains was directly, you know, inspired by this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it tops what, what happens in Our Majesty's Secret Service. It's just such a great culmination of, uh, of story and, 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 and set piece, I think. Absolutely. I, 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 I love Inception as a movie, um, but also that kind of, there's a real focus on action there. Um, what, what the Majesty sequence almost... In a way, when you compare it to sort of like the big action at the end of You Only Live Twice and how they were following it, it always feels a little bit understated and a little bit more calm. Um, and it, it, it kind of, I don't know, in a way, it kind of feels like I'm watching a very choreographed dance. I could feel like I'm watching sort of ballet where you've got sort of all the vehicles, the helicopters sweeping in um, and it, it, you can kind of follow the geography through Piz Gloria as Bond and um, all of Draco's sort of men sort of follow their way through. Um, it feels very well technically put together and every shot in there is sort of framed to feel like a painting. It's it's really just, it's gorgeous. You could put, take a freeze frame at any point in the sequence um, and you'd have a beautiful sort of little picture, a beautiful desk top background kind of thing yeah and you mentioned it being like a like a, a, a dance or musical sequence but and obviously john barry's score does wonders um, yeah well that that so, is the thing is we get the sorry i'm completely talking over you here um we get the the last rendition the last use of the original rendition of the james bond theme um which is kind of chopped up and re-edited when you listen to to it how it is um in the edit process, they've clearly like divided it up to match what's happening on screen. Um, and then you get John Barry coming in with that great bit of music that's got a real pace and energy to it as Bond's chasing Telus of Alice. The uh, stunt work uh, obviously is exemplary in this. And I think what's come through with these greatest moments of Bond that we've done so far, is it's never just you know, an acting scene. It's never just a stunt scene. It's the combination of all the things together that makes a great Bond movie moment, I think. And the stunt work in this is is exemplary. Oh, it's sublime. Um, 
And there's a lot of things I think you can just sort of take for granted that were really difficult stunts, like the guys jumping out the helicopter and he disappears into the snow. That's really dangerous, but yeah. it look, it's just such a small moment. And then there's a guy in a very small space with a flamethrower, again, some, firing at the camera, firing at a man behind the camera. Like it's something, again, really fucking dangerous. Um, but it's, it just all looks so easy and so well done. And it's so easy to get lost in it as a viewer. Um, and I think that's part of the magic. And, and worth mentioning as well that Piz Gloria itself was a, was basically cobbled together by Eon um, for the movie uh, mm-hmm. on an existing structure, um, which in itself is, 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 a, is a miracle of, of movie making. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, Piz Gloria is, I, we, like I said, there was something between greatest and most iconic, but Piz Gloria is actually really iconic in the Bond world. It's a really iconic image. Um, I think it's something we all sort of recognise instantly as Bond fans. Um, and maybe it's not quite as big and as outlandish as the uh, volcano set from You Only Live Twice. Um, but there's something in its simplicity. There's evil base on top of a mountain and it looks like a, is it, a, is it an octagon? Is it a dodecagon? I'm not sure, but it, it just looks so beautiful up there um, that it has become iconic. And that, that really works. You can sort of feel that they're shooting that on location, which you wouldn't have got had they had to re- resort to, to building it on a soundstage. I know some of it is on a soundstage, but uh, you really feel like they put the money on the screen um, mm-hmm. when you see those uh, those landscapes. I think you've chosen an absolutely terrific moment, Sean. I, um, I'm thrilled you chose this. Uh, it's, it's definitely one of my favourite uh, Bond climaxes. Um, I love the use of uh, Chekhov's wall spikes, you know. Yes, this. oh yeah, you see them through the whole <laughs> film and you're like, you know. You're wait, just waiting for it, aren't you? <laughs> it's like, and, and they they lead the build up, and then even getting the guy down the stairs, like the, he gets a thing on it, a ring on his head, and it's like you're just yeah. waiting. <laughs> and, and of course, well, that is something as well that then comes back to the music. Uh, that moment where um, the guard lands on the spike and it goes into his back is the exact moment they cut off the James Bond theme. You get that right. ding twang at the end, and it's just it's so wonderful. It's brilliant, brilliant. Um, right. Well, thank you so much for choosing that moment, Sean. I, we're asking everyone as well. What What do you think the secret is to the to the longevity of Bond? How has it survived for the last sixty years? Oh, see, this is a it's one hell of a question. This one, um, I you, there's a lot of things you could say, I guess, in terms of him being a British icon and stuff. But I think you can break that down further, and particularly with the films. Um. I think what's so wonderfully unique about Bond as a franchise and why it's managed to last so long is its ability to reinvent itself um, and its ability to sort of stay contemporary and be able to change. I think that's a really sort of something that is taken for granted that um, is really sort of focused on in Bond is that every, every film is vastly different. Um, everyone feels like a new director or a new crew sort of coming to tackle it. Um, it's constantly evolving um, and it's not also not afraid to sort of take um, the era that it was made in and sort of showcase it really well. Like um, the 60s films, they feel very much like 60s spy films. I guess that's because they kind of influenced the craze. But then the 70s films, there's 
a lot of sort of reaction to what's going on, particularly in cinema. I'm sorry, excuse me a sec. <clears throat> um, and I think then that carries on through the 80s and the 90s. Um, and it's sort of, it, it just, Bond has a great way, the films have a great way um, of keeping themselves relevant and current in a way that appeals to everybody. So you're not just making a Bond film that's going to appeal to James Bond fans. Um, the generations of kids can watch these films back um, and they don't feel like they've aged. Or at least they didn't when I when I was a kid and I started watching Bond and I saw Spy Who Loved Me on ITV. Um, and you go back and watch it. And this, I don't feel like I'm watching an old movie. I don't feel like I'm watching my parents' movie. I feel like I'm watching something that really communicates to me um even though spy who loved me is incredibly 70s there's flares and everything um disco yeah yeah it's so disco isn't it (laughs) it's so so disco but it also it doesn't feel like it's aged a day in many ways because of how thought through all the stunt sequences are how well shot everything is how sort of like how much effort's gone into building the sets and making them look not con- not contemporary, but also very contemporary. Um, it's a very sort of hard job that um, everyone's everyone comes together, and that's the thing, I guess, with every Bond film is everyone comes together and works really hard. They work their socks off, and it really comes across on screen. You never, I don't think, there's ever been a Bond film that you can watch and it feels like a lazy cash grab. You, you then yeah. it does it never. No Bond film, possibly never say never again but that's a whole different thing. None of them feel like um, they're just ticking boxes. None of them feel like, well, you've got to do this. Now we've got to do this. They all, they all feel different and unique. Um, and every sequence is thought out and getting between every sequence is thought out. Um, they're also, I think they're films that aren't um, so too heavily focused on script and story. And I, mm. I, and I know a lot of people will be thinking now, like, whoa, he's a madman, what's he saying? Um, but I do, th- I think that's a good thing. I think it's great that um, everyone on the production team is talking. So Ken Adam, as a production designer, can come in and say, well, let's change this little bit of script because I can do something that looks cooler. Um, and everyone works collaborati- collaboratively. And I think that's what filmmaking should be. And that's why, that's why I think Bond's sort of just continues to evolve and continues to last um I, it doesn't come down it's not one man it's not one writer it's not even one producer it's everybody sharing their knowledge and wanting to work really hard um to create something that's going to speak to um everybody masses of people any anybody can enjoy a bond film um they don't they don't sort of tunnel vision it in to being for one specific type of audience um, I think that, I think that's brilliant. I think it should be celebrated, and we've got a huge change coming up now, um, and I think that absolutely should should be embraced. Um, yeah, moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you've really put it beautifully there. Um, it's about you know harmony, people working together, and I think at this stage, sixty years of, as a franchise, there is no other franchise that has had this success rate. I mean, you could say Star Trek, Doctor Who, um, but these are 25 blockbuster movies, each one of them a miracle in their own right. Absolutely. um, And and even when you look back at 
if you do look back at other franchises, Star Trek, Doctor Who, Star Wars, um, even sort of like Batman, things like that, it's all they've all kind of had periods where we collectively look back at them and go, oh, that wasn't so good. I don't think there's any point in the James Bond franchise where everyone would agree and look back and go, oh, that wasn't so good. There's somebody loves every single piece of it. Even even Absolutely, there's a lot of people, yeah. there'll be people screaming at me now going, well, Die Another Day was rubbish. But I love Die Another Day because as a kid, it really spoke to me. Um, as a seven-year-old, are- it, was, it was brilliant. There is, there are bits to love about that movie, I think, and it has its important place in the in the franchise. So, as mm-hmm. every every single movie does, and um, I think that's also part of it as well. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Beatles, and uh, I think a lot of the the, the sort of um, the mystique and and the prestige that exists around the Beatles is because of the story behind the Beatles, mm-hmm. and I think that's the same for Bond as well, right? The story behind Bond is as interesting as the stories that they put on the on the big screen, and. Um, yeah, I hope they get another sixty years. Um, I don't think I'll be around to see them all, but I'd hope, hope, hope to be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you ne- you never know. You might be interviewing me again for the hundred twentieth. Uh, I'll see you again. <laughs> yeah. God, that's a terrifying thought, isn't it? Uh, well, thank you, thank you so much for joining us, Sean. How do people find you online if they want to uh, see what you're Ooh. up to? Online, I'm just. I'm think I'm, at the moment. I'm just on social media. Instagram, I'm at Sean Longmore. Twitter, I'm that tall ginger i think i'm i'm on social media i don't really know how to use it um but sometimes i post things um this is coming out during the anniversary isn't it so i will probably hopefully have done lots of lovely bond stuff by then so i'll have lots of lovely new bond pictures um for people to just look at and enjoy and uh, just just to help celebrate with everybody Um, so yeah thank you thank you so much for having me thank you for listening to me I've loved it. Thank you so much, Sean. Thank you. The Games Bond A to Z podcast is hosted and produced by Tom Butler and Brendan Duffy. With music by Tom Ingemels and artwork by Helen Dolly. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.